This is the History Tavern Podcast. The myth of the first Thanksgiving has permeated American culture since the mid-19th century and has helped bolster a false narrative that characterizes the relationship between the Native Americans and European colonists as largely cooperative and constructive. Absent from that myth, however, is the violence and upheaval the Native Americans experienced from the moment of first contact with the European colonists, which occurred long before the Pilgrims arrived in Plymouth in 1620. The story surrounding the famous feast, that would later become the center of the myth, is to say the least, much more complicated. On this episode of the History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, Dr. David J. Silverman talked about his book, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. Dr. Silverman discussed the history of the Wampanoags, their relationship with the Pilgrims and other colonists, and the origins of the first Thanksgiving myth. Your book, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. Um, you have a monumental task uh, in writing about Native American history. You, I, I, you're trying to correct a narrative that has been created over centuries that uh, it, it's ingrained um, in all of us, I think. And uh, I, I think it, it's really hard. So if you could talk about changing that perspective and getting us to uh, think about you know, one of the things that just that strikes me reading your book, it's a simple phrase, but this was not a new world. This was an old world with people having inhabited it for a very long time. So can you just talk about, you know, what what's your goal when you're writing? How do you get us to shift our thinking? Uh, there are really two tasks here and I, in this book. And I think the first one is relatively easy and the second one is is much more challenging. The, the easy task is to demonstrate to people that the Thanksgiving myth of Native people conceding to colonialism, effectively handing their country over to Europeans and then getting out of the way so the United States can emerge, showing them that that's false is, is fairly simple. Most reasonably thoughtful adults that I've encountered when I've asked them, you know, do you really think a shared meal is an appropriate symbol for Native American colonial relations, they will readily concede, well, no, perhaps not. They don't know exactly why the Thanksgiving myth is false. They don't know the details. But when you confront them with the details, most of them are, are willing, willing to acknowledge that the Thanksgiving myth is just that, a myth rather than history. The more challenging task is then to take the implications of that kind of myth-making. Of course, the Thanksgiving myth is just one minor part of an overall pattern of American myth-making, which blinds us to effectively a genocide of, of Native America over the course of centuries. To take Native American history seriously and move it to the center, of the way that we tell American history, that's a much more challenging task. So, you know, you raise the example um, that the Americas was not a new world when Europeans encountered them, that it was an old world, every bit as much as Europe or Africa or Asia or any other place on, on the face of the earth, that it was a place um, inhabited by people, people who had discovered the Americas thousands of years earlier, right? Who had built up civilizations over the course of, of 
uh, over thousands of years, and that those those civilizations are worthy of recognition by us in the present. Um, that's a that's a real challenge. Uh, no no question about it. You know, taking Native American history seriously turns the heroic patriotic themes of white American history inside out and forces us to be as a nation to be more humble and critical. Can you, before we jump uh, sort of more into your narrative and the Wampanoags and, and this tragic story, uh, but one that I think we all have to know, um, can you talk a little bit about sources? Uh, a, a, another challenge, I think, for a historian of the Native American uh, field. How do, you, how do you get their perspective, um, which for years and years had been missing? And the sources lean towards the... Uh, the English and the other uh, uh, Europeans who colonized uh, North America. How do you, do you sort of, do you try to extract it from some of those sources or is that, you know, j j simply how do you, how do we put their voice in this story? Right. So let me just start with this observation, uh, you know, because I've had many conversations with native people, Wampanoag people uh, specifically over the years who say, you know, you can't trust these sources. They all lie. They, you know, they're incomplete and so on and so forth. To which I answer, I will, yes, that's true at a certain level. Um, but let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, and, you know, let's recognize that within these problematic sources are Native voices, are uh, glimpses of Native American life. Um, let's recognize that there were colonists who actually knew native people well, who spoke their languages, who knew them as friends, who slept over their houses, who traded with them on a regular basis, who hosted native people in their own homes, who knew these people of hundreds of years ago far better than we can possibly grasp from a distance of 400 years. Let's also start with the principle that if we only tell sources that are, tell histories that are generated by the actual historical actors, in large volume, we'll be left with only the history of white elites. And I don't want that kind of history. You know, I, want to, I, I want to do the best that we can with the problematic sources that we have. So let's talk about those sources. Look, Native people were most of the people in colonial America. Let's start with that point. Overwhelmingly, they were most of the people. They were politically powerful, they were economically powerful, and they were militarily powerful. Therefore, colonists had to deal with these people on a regular basis, just to survive, never mind to profit and thrive. Um, and so if you look in the index of almost any set of official colonial records, almost invariably, the largest entry is Indians, for the reasons that I just stated. So Native people were a regular presence in colonial records. Now, look, uh, colonial authorities tended to pay attention only to those aspects of Native American life that were important to them. So they talked to Native American leaders. They paid close attention to Native American military affairs. They paid close attention to trade, you know, the fur trade and, and the like. Um, there were also missionaries, uh, Christian missionaries, who, by the way, I think knew Native people better. This might be like total, this might be completely antithetical to most people's assumptions. I think colonial missionaries tended to know Native people better than any other part, part of colonial society. Because they learned these people's languages. They tried to undermine them from within. They, they tried to learn their religious beliefs and moral values in order to change them. 
So they could disagree with those values even as they were documenting them. Right, right. So you know what that means is we have we have views of various aspects of Native American life, mostly related to the activities of Native American males. Um, colonists very rarely paid attention to Native females, but we have some view of this society. What's more, Native people had this remarkable knack for getting their point across to colonial officials. How do we know that? Well, they said things that colonial officials recorded that colonists didn't want to hear. Critiques, pointed, cutting critiques of colonial society over and over and over again. Threats um, and really perceptive criticisms um, that, that cut to the heart of who colonists thought they were um, and, and their moral purpose. We should also keep in mind that in a place like New England, which, by the way, is one of the most literate regions of the entire European world of this time, only Sweden had a higher rate of literacy than colonial New England. They kept copious records. And it's not just one colony. It's Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Plymouth, New Haven. They didn't always see the eye to eye on things. And they approached Indian affairs from different vantages. We also regionally had the Dutch of New Netherland and the French of New France, who were also active in Maine. They had their own take on Native affairs. So we have a lot of sources that we can place in counterpoint with one another that give us a more rounded view of what's going on in Indian country. These records aren't perfect. They're fraught. They're incomplete. But they help us to tell a, a, a story that's not just the story of the victors. Yeah, absolutely. Um with that, can you talk a little bit? Well, I mean, you, you talk in the book. I mean, we've had a tendency over the years to paint with a very broad brush uh, when it comes to uh, Native Americans, uh, thinking of them as one people. Um, and then you complicate that even further, even when we're talking about tribes. It's not it, these tribes all don't have the same opinion. I mean, there is jockeying within the tribes for uh, power and influence. So can you, um, with that, can you just give us a, 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 some of a, a history of the Wampanoag people? Um, of course, like we started off the interview, they existed long before the colonists ever got to, to North America. So can you tell us a little bit about them and how they might have been distinct from other Native Americans? Sure. So southern New England was a densely populated place when, when Europeans arrived. Now we're talking about over a hundred thousand people uh, crowded into this area. That's because the resources of the area are rich. Um, it's fish, shellfish, corn, bean, squash, horticulture, wild game like venison and uh, and fowl and the like. And so you know life was good uh, in this region. And with the dense population, uh, the people competed for for resources and started to develop societies, polities that would allow them to engage in this, this competition more successfully. Effectively, the groups that we think of as tribes were coalitions of, of local uh, communities that we call sachemships, about the size of a town. Um, they would be comprised of, of several hundred people. These towns would be led by chiefs called sachems. And the towns needed some kind of uh, larger authority who could arbitrate their disputes, lead them in times of war, um, and uh, 
particularly in, in times of emergency, um, especially violent conflict with neighboring people, one of these sachems would emerge as a great regional leader. We anthropologists call these, these figures paramount sachems. Um, and what these paramount sachems would do is they'd help to create a consensus among a dozen or more, 20 or more um, local communities. He would, he would lead them in their common cause. And sometimes he would have to force some of them into this coalition. And he would collect tribute from them, willingly or unwillingly, they would grant it, um, in order to fund his activities. These paramount chiefs are the native leaders that we know of as tribal chiefs during this period of time. They include Massasoit or, or, or Usamequin, the leader of, of the Wampanoags, Canonicus of the Narragansetts, Uncas of the Mohegans, and so on and so forth. Um, these, these figures, these paramount sachems or chiefs, had a really complicated uh, uh, a series of challenges on their hands. On the one hand, they have their local kin who tend to defer to them in politics, and then they have outlying communities or sachemships that are usually reluctant members of these confederacies and don't want to pay, imagine this, they don't want to pay taxes yeah. uh, to, to their leaders and are often chafing against those obligations. And so sometimes they have to use a heavy hand to keep these groups within, within the fold. Um, when the, by the time the, the Mayflower arrives in, in 1620, uh, the Wampanoags are a coalition of people stretching from Massachusetts Bay on the north, eastward to the outer limits of Cape Cod, and then back west to Narragansett Bay, which is, for, the, for your listeners, it's the heart of modern-day Rhode Island. Right, right. Um, can you talk about, you know, a version of this story, you know, 50 years ago would have started with the Mayflower and would have gone forward from there. Um, but of course, as you lay out in detail in your book, the history of European contact with the Wampanoag and with, with Native Americans in general stretches back, uh, you know, I think at least 100 years in terms of the Wampanoag. Right. Uh, so can you talk... Can you talk about the history of that contact and how it informed the Wampanoags uh, in terms of how they would deal with the Europeans uh, you know, going forward from there? Right. So just as you know, understanding how the Wampanoags old world led to the creation of these competitive sachemships or, or tribes in a densely populated region, um, understanding the the prehistory, if you will, um, of Wampanoag life before the arrival of the Mayflower in just the century before that contact is also essential. And it, it was essential in two different ways. Uh, one is this. So contact between Wampanoags and Europeans had been happening since at least 1524 with the voyage of Giovanni de Verrazzano um, to Southern New England. It might have been taking place even earlier. Um, for all we know. Uh, Europeans were fishing off the coast of Newfoundland since at least the 1490s, um, and maybe even before Columbus, and sometimes those fishing expeditions would coast southern New England and make contact with Native people. These contacts did, typically did not go well. Um, though both sides were interested in trade, uh, Native people were interested in European metal weapons and tools and cloth and glass beads and the like, and Europeans were interested in native furs and fresh food. Um, 
almost invariably these trading sessions degenerated into violence, um, whether because one side is overreacting to a perceived threat from the other or because one side steals from the other or what, what have you. There's a, any one of a variety of circumstances. Oftentimes, uh, these Europeans uh, would, you know, slaughter a handful of natives and sail off. Oftentimes, also, they would take people captive and ferry them back across the Atlantic. Sometimes they would sell them into slavery. Sometimes they would bring these natives back to Europe, European capitals like London for training as interpreters and guides. This particular dynamic is consequential uh, to uh, the Wampanoags and their contact with the English and the Mayflower um, because at least two Wampanoags had been to London and back and spoke English by the time the, the Mayflower arrived. Um, one of them is named Deepanow. He had spent years in London, um, learned English, and managed to finagle his way back uh, to Wampanoag country by telling the English he could lead them to gold in his own country. Um, and again, yeah, he, he manages this scheme years before uh, the Mayflower arrived. He becomes an opponent of Plymouth Colony. He wants to wipe the place out. The more famous returnee was Squanto or Tisquantum. Um, the English had kidnapped him, sold him into slavery in Spain, and then through a remarkable train of events, he managed to make contact with the English merchant community in Malaga, Spain, makes his way to London, goes from London to Newfoundland, back to London, back to Newfoundland, back to London, and then arrives back in Wampanoag country six months before the Mayflower. He knows the Mayflower sponsors. He speaks English. He had traveled Europe. He's in a really strong position to mediate between his people and the English. The other way that this early contact is consequential is that it introduced a terrible epidemic disease in the Wampanoag country in the year 1616. And for the next, we don't know the identity of the disease. I suspect it was smallpox. We're not sure. Contemporaries just called it a plague. What we know it did, though, is it eviscerated the Wampanoag population, uh, depopulated the country by upwards of 50 to 90 percent, depending on the community. And it more, most importantly, it left the Wampanoags vulnerable to raids by their Narragansett tribal enemies to the West. Narragansetts didn't contract the disease. What that meant is when the Mayflower arrives, the Wampanoags need help against the Narragansetts. And what do they know about Europeans? Well, they know they're violent, they know they're treacherous, and they know they have these incredible weapons. And so making an alliance with them might be a means to protect Wampanoag independence. The irony, of course, is that the Wampanoags lose their independence to these people over the long term. Yeah, so, I mean, so you mentioned the Mayflower, which landed uh, December 1620. Is that is that correct, 1620? Uh, uh, Cape Cod. Uh, uh, Cape Cod. Uh, yeah, November, November 18, uh, 1620. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, so what was, obviously, you said the, the, the Wampanoags would learn. They knew they were violent. Uh, they, they would... Uh, try to gobble up land, but what was different about the Pilgrims? I, I think the the Wampanoags re recognize something very very uh, quickly uh, that this wasn't your usual, as you say, roughnecks that uh, sort of came to to North America. Uh, what was different about them? Well, they had women and children with them, um, and you know, there some Wampanoags, yeah, as I mentioned, had been to Europe, so they knew these people had women. <laughs> but most Wampanoags had never seen European women before, um, and 
that suggested that they might not be a war expedition um, like some of these earlier visitors to the, the Wampanoag coast, that they might have peaceful intent. You don't bring women with you if you're intending to fight. Um, what, you know, what's more, um, you know, this group was really weak. <laughs> I mean, I, I think all too often in, in our uh, telling of, of the Mayflower story, it seems like the, the English are in control of the situation from the beginning. Uh, they most certainly were not. You know, they came with only 100 people. And within a matter of three months of, of landing in Wampanoag country, their numbers were reduced by half. Not only 50 people. Wampanoags outnumbered them by at least 20 to 1 and probably more. The Wampanoags could have dispatched this, this colony in a moment if they had wished. They decided to do otherwise. And th that, I think, is the big story of this so-called friendship. Right. So, so talk about that a little bit. I, I, there was a treaty that was, I think, agreed to uh, between Usamequin, who, who you've mentioned, who was the sachem of uh, the Wampanoags. And if I get any of this wrong, uh, Dr. Silverman, please right. correct so me. So far, so good. So so. Uh, there's a treaty that is that is made and I think agreed to. What is the understanding on the Wampanoag side of this treaty in 1620? Like you say, the Wampanoags perhaps have a calculation to make. They've been weakened by this this great plague. Uh, the pilgrims are having a really hard time uh, in their first months there. So what does the treaty say and what is the understanding on both sides? So, just so your reader, uh, your listeners understand who we're talking about. When we say Usamequin, um, your your listeners will uh, probably know him by his title, Massasoit. Right, right. Uh, now, Massasoit is like when we call our leader Mr. President. His real name isn't Mr. President. That's his title. Massasoit means great leader. Uh, well, the Wampanoag great leader was Usamequin. His, that's his real name, and it means uh, yellow feather. So yeah, Usamequin eventually reaches out uh, to the English and, you know, the two sides parlay and they form an alliance. Now we have the English written version of that alliance and school children have been reading that, that treaty uncritically for a great many years. Um, we need to be very suspect when we read what the English jotted down because it, it what the English recorded makes it sound like they're in control of this situation when they most decidedly were not. Fundamentally, this is a, a, a treaty of mutual defense. If the English should come under attack, be it from the French or the Narragansetts, the Wampanoags would come to their defense. If the Wampanoags should be attacked, say by the Narragansetts, the English would come to their defense. It was a treaty of mutual trade the two sides would swap their goods with with one another um, through the auspices of, of Usamequa. Then the English include some clauses that simply do not ring true. Um, it uh, This treaty, as they recorded it, obligated uh, uh, the Wampanoags to turn over any uh, Native person who the English suspected of a crime to English justice. There is zero chance that Usamequin either agreed to that or meant to abide by that provision. After all, this is his country. 
right, his right. people are more powerful than the English. He's not going to turn over his people to a foreign group uh, to be tried and possibly executed. Nonsense. Um, they, there's a provision saying uh, any stolen goods will be returned to the other party. I'm sure he agreed to that. Uh, the Wampanoags had been pilfering goods from Plymouth for several months before this uh, th this agreement. So, okay, uh, fair enough. Fundamentally, you know, this is an agreement for the two sides to benefit one another. Um, and that, that's really what it's what it's all about. Right, right. So let's let's skip ahead to the part here uh, that is so interesting uh, to, to the great feast that takes place that sort of becomes the center of the Thanksgiving myth, but not until much later. So we'll, we'll get to that part. But if you could just mm -hmm. sort of talk about the facts of this feast that takes place. I, I my understanding is that it it wasn't some great feast planned for the English and the Wampanoags to come together. It was an English feast that that the Wampanoags sort of uh, end up stumbling upon. So can you just talk about that a little bit? Right. So it's really a non-event to the historical actors. Uh, the Wampanoags never mention it again, um, nor do the English, uh, for that matter. I mean, they record they they devote all of two paragraphs. Uh, to it in in their writings, and never mention it in diplomacy with the Wampanoags um, in in the future. You know, leading up to this point, the two parties had traded with one another. At one point, um, it seems that there's a Wampanoag coup attempt against Usamequin, precisely for this alliance that he's forging with the English. The English come to his defense. That's a big deal uh, to him. That proves that they mean to live up to the alliance. In the case of, of this feast, you know, the English have survived their to get through their first harvest. They can now feed themselves. Um, they've made this alliance with the Wampanoags, so now they have some protection and trade. And that trade is critical because if the colony isn't turning a profit, its investors are going to pull their resources and the place is going to dissolve. It looks like they might actually have a viable future. So once the harvest is in, they decide to celebrate. They're going to take a couple of days off. They've been working extremely hard. <laughs> They've lost a lot of their people. Um, it's time to take a breath of fresh air and reflect and relax. And so they do. And, you know, they start firing off their guns. And, you know, they have a target practice of celebration. And the Wampanoags hear the gunfire. Well, they have a mutual defense pack. So Usamequin and 90 men show up at this colony. Keep in mind, it's only 50 people, and most of them are not men. Usamequin and 90 men show up armed at Plymouth Colony, and the two sides are there staring at each other. In almost any other colonial context, this would have led to a massacre of one side by the other. Not here. There was enough trust built up between the two that... Uh, no one fires the first shot. The Wampanoags put down their arms and say, oh, great, we're, you know, we're, we're glad you're okay, and we intend to stay. I don't think it's a matter of the English inviting them. I don't think the English really have a choice in this matter. <laughs> I mean, part of being friends means that when, when the other side shows up, you host them. And the two sides feast for the next several days. And it, this is not a Thanksgiving dinner as we would understand it. There are very few buildings in this colony, there are very few tables and chairs. They're eating outside and they're eating wild game, venison, eels, oh. shell, shellfish, uh, you know, fish, um, 
fowl. Uh, probably turkey, but not just turkey, ducks, geese, and the like, cornmeal stews. There's no, there's no sugar, there's no flour, there's no butter. So you can cut out most of uh, the foods that we normally associate uh, with Thanksgiving today. It's a three-day wild kind of rambunctious affair of men engaged in, in sport, uh, you know, feats of strength and target practice and the like. It is not the kind of domestic affair that we now think of today. Right, right. So, uh, and and I, I think we'll get back to sort of how that myth grows because it's so fascinating. Uh, but after this feast does take place, this actual feast, there's a deterioration over a long period of time between the Wampanoags and the English. And one of the things that I, and there's a long history of it, and you cover it brilliantly in your book. But one of the things I was most fascinated by, and of course, the the English sort of continue to grab the upper hand, and a lot of it is by sheer numbers and the amount of people that are coming in, but they also sort of brilliantly and evilly use their legal system against the Wampanoags. And so I don't know if you could talk a little bit about how they sort of, how they use their own laws to sort of continue to encroach on the Wampanoag country. Well, they're unable to do that until they have a population advantage. And that really is the key element in the shifting power dynamic. And it has actually less to do with Plymouth Colony than it does with Plymouth's neighbor to the north, Massachusetts. Uh, Plymouth always was a small, underpopulated, economically marginal place, like Maryland or, uh, you know, or North Carolina. Uh, during the colonial era. But Massachusetts is a behemoth. Uh, it, it attracts, in the course of less than 10 years, between 15 and 20,000 migrants. Wow. And these people repopulate like, like rabbits. Um, the women of that great migration had, on average, eight children over the course of their lives. That's a recipe for massive population growth. And so by, by the, the late 1650s, early 1660s, the English are the majority in southern New England over the collective population of the various native peoples. And as they gain this population advantage, they start to force their jurisdiction over native people. Now, let, let's keep in mind, native people never, ever intended to fall under English law. You know, the English are guests in Indian country, and Native people expected them to abide by Native custom, including solving criminal matters. So that, you know, what the English are doing is, is twofold. One is they're buying land from Native people, and Native people's expectation is that the English are buying into Indian country, much as if a Wampanoag person had crossed over the Atlantic to England and bought land there. The assumption would be that they are now part of English society under English law. That's the Wampanoag expectation. That's not what the English think. They think when they buy native land, the land has been removed from native jurisdiction and now falls under English jurisdiction. When native, native people start to contest that interpretation of these land sales, what the English do is they flood the land with livestock, cows, horses, sheep, goats, and the like. When native people inevitably kill some of these animals, the English then say you've, you've destroyed our private property, which makes native people scratch their heads. The English don't compensate them for killing deer. 
uh, or geese or what have you, but these are wandering property claims. And they try to haul the native uh, offenders into court and then to fine them, um, fines that native people can only pay by ceding land. Um, likewise, when native people start talking amongst themselves about what they're going to do about all this, um, the English haul them before their governments and say, you're plotting war against us, which they probably were, then fine them and try to seize land from them, right? Which only is going to lead to more war plotting. Eventually, when we start getting to the mid 1660s and early 1670s, the English get even bolder and start hauling native people into criminal court for crimes committed between native people in Indian territory. In other words, the English are really muscularly projecting their jurisdiction over native people. And native people recognize that if this trend continues, they are going to be landless. The English are going to reduce them to servitude. Their leaders are going to have no power. In other words, they're going to be servants in their own country to this foreign group. It's a recipe for war. And that's what happens. Um, so... so uh, it- can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, Pumetacom, uh, who is Usamequin's uh, son, who has it's so it's so uh, interesting to see you this sort of play out in the book, sort of this feeling about Usamequin, who was respected, although had to sort of fight off uh, some of the the other interests among the Wampanoags, is that there this shift in terms of how the Wampanoags start to think like Usamequin did what he had to do to to sort of uh, to, to ensure our survival. But now Pometicom has this completely different calculation to make. Um, it's either act or just completely uh, end up being subjugated. Is that am I oversimplifying there, uh, Dr. Silverman or, or? No, you're not oversimplifying it at all. Uh, you know, Usamequin's short term gamble had been correct. His alliance with the English enabled the Wampanoags to maintain their independence from the Narragansett. But Usamequin dies in 1660, and from that time on, the English emerge as the Wampanoag's biggest threat in a number of ways. I mean, some of it has to do with seizing land like we talked about. Some of it has to do with projecting their jurisdiction over Native people um, and using it to seize more land and to reduce Native people to servitude. Yet another part of it has to do with the way that the English use the Christian mission to cleave off Wampanoag tribute payers. Wampanoags on Cape Cod and the islands of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket hosted Christian missionaries and then used that relationship to halt their tribute payments to Usamequin's son, Pometicom, also known as Metacomet or King Philip. Um, and, you know, Pometicom knows if he tries to use military force to extract this tribute from these groups, the English will come to their defense. So he has a lot of grievances uh, against these people that are mounting. What's more, at one point, the English even hauled Pometicom's brother uh, before Plymouth's governor, and he dies while he's in their possession, and Pometicom suspects that they poisoned him. So uh, he's sore on a lot of different fronts. Uh, In the wake of the English threat, he opens up diplomatic ties to the Narragansetts and starts negotiating with them, um, saying, look, uh, for all of our differences, we need to make common cause against this common threat. And uh, Pometicom seems to be organizing a multi-tribal anti-colonial resistance movement throughout the late 1660s and, and 1670s. 
Many Native people don't want to go along with this, um, either because they don't trust Pometacom. You know, they have their own intertribal rivalries, which seem to them more pressing than their grievances against the English. Others think the English have become too strong, and there's there's no turning them back. But for other Native people, they feel like they have nothing left to lose. And so in, in June of 1675, um, Pometacom leads the Wampanoags to war and eventually English violations of other Native people's neutrality in this war forces the Narragansetts, the Nipmucks, the Pocumtucks, the Sokokis and others into Pometacom's camp. Now I should emphasize this war is not strict, strictly an Indian colonial war. The colonists have many Native people on their side and that is true in any Indian colonial war in North America. There's no such thing as a strictly Indian colonial war. Colonists always have native people on their side against other native people. Otherwise they wouldn't have won. In this particular case, the English have the Mohegans, the Pequots and Christian Wampanoags on their side. They even eventually enlist the mo formidable Mohawks of the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois League onto their side, which is a critical turning point in the war. Um, and ultimately that dynamic is what leads to the anti-colonial native forces going down to defeat. And and it's a brutal war. I mean, they're, they're the villages that are just destroyed, women and children killed. Um, and one of the stories that just is so significant in your book is what happens to Pometacom. Uh, he's killed and... You know the 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 significance of what the what the English do to him is just incredible. Right. So in the the waning days of the war, a year later, so in in the summer of 1676, the Wampanoags and their their native allies are fighting for their very lives, I and mean, they are being pursued by English and and the colonists' allied Indian forces on a daily basis, and eventually the English and their native allies catch up with Pometacom and kill him dead in a swamp in the middle of, of his homeland. And Benjamin Church, often lionized as a hero of this war, orders Pometacom to be dismembered. Um, and he sends his head, his severed head, Pometacom's severed head to Plymouth. And Plymouth pikes it outside the gates of, of the town and leaves it there to rot for 20 years. Let's keep in mind, this is the head of the son of Usumikwin or Massasoit, the very Wampanoag leader who had welcomed these people to his country and who played such a prominent role in the Thanksgiving Day. Wow. After, after, this, after this act, Plymouth and Massachusetts hold the day of Thanksgiving in praise of God for saving them from their savage enemies, as they as they called it, and yeah, it's a it's a re remarkable corrective to our our sugar coated view sure. of the Thanksgiving. So so, and I'll end with this, and I know it's a big question. So I, maybe I'll ask it this way: How did I end up as a kindergartner dressed as a pilgrim, and my other classmates dressed as Indians singing "My Country's Tizzy"? You know, with this this myth of this great coming together and this friendship that we all assumed then lasted throughout the history of the United States. How did that how did that come to be? For two centuries, uh, white New Englanders celebrated Thanksgiving without invoking pilgrims and Indians whatsoever. Uh, there was no connection between the Thanksgiving holiday and this mythical story. The date the date 
of that association uh, is 1841, uh, which is when the Reverend Alexander Young published the primary source account from Plymouth Colony that mentioned that feast, that 1621 feast between uh, the colonists and the Wampanoags. And to that account, he added a footnote. And let me promise you as a historian, there aren't a lot of the famous footnotes out there. Um, this is one of them. And, and the footnote said, this was the first Thanksgiving, the Harvest Festival of New England. Orators like Ralph Waldo Emerson and John Quincy Adams then spread this idea throughout the country until it became taken for granted that this was the first Thanksgiving. Now, eventually, Thanksgiving is declared a national holiday during civil, the Civil War by Abraham Lincoln. And the, the holiday and the myth that had become associated with it took hold for a variety of different reasons. One is that you know, white Protestants, particularly in the Northeast during the mid to late 19th century, were deeply anxious that the country was being overrun by Catholic immigrants from Ireland and Germany. And you know, this is a story that asserted their ancestors' cultural authority in the country, um, that they were the progenitors of democracy and Christianity and morality. Um, it also was appealing because the Indian Wars of the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountain West were coming to an end. You know, as the country had always uh, derided Native people as bloodthirsty savages in the context of, of, of these conflicts, now Native people were subjugated. And Native people could then, then assume an unthreatening role in a national founding myth. And what this founding myth asserted is that Native people had consented to colonialism, that the country as Manifest Destiny would, would, would have it, uh, expanded bloodlessly across the continent for the good of, of humankind. Um, you know, what's, what's more, this, this myth also gave New England uh, a, a moral role in the country's history that distanced it from the racial antagonisms of the period. Uh, Reconstruction was raging in the South. Um, the Indian Wars were just coming to a close in the West. And what does New England say? It says, well, our history is about Native people and colonists making friends and everyone lives happily ever after. It's a story that makes white people feel good about colonialism. And that's why it was taught to you in the schools and why it was taught to me in the schools. It's a story that's about white proprietorship of the nation and, and sanitizing the violent colonial history on which this country is built. It's an important story to know, and I think it's especially important given it's Thanksgiving week. Uh, Dr. David J. Silverman, a professor at George Washington University. The name of the book, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. Dr. Silverman, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Dr. David J. Silverman. Please check out his book, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. And thank you for listening to the History Tavern Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, or follow on Twitter and Facebook. <laughs>